Hello, Redemption Church. Today, we are going to continue moving through the book of Zechariah, and in just a moment, we will read from Zechariah chapter 9, specifically verses 9 and 10. But before we do that, let's take a moment and pray. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to just spend a few minutes looking at your word. Uh, God, thank you that even though we are uh, separated um, this morning, that we are not all gathered in one place. God, that you are still at work. Um, God, that you can still speak to us from your word, that your Holy Spirit can still speak to our hearts and minds and draw us close to you. God, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would change us by what we hear in your word. I pray that you would move us um, to draw close to you, God, in faith and repentance. God, I pray that you would make us a people who place our hope firmly in you. And Holy Father, it's in the name of our Savior Jesus that I pray. Amen. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10. This is what this passage says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Throughout the narrative of scripture, there are several big themes that run from beginning to end. I like to think of scripture, um, personally, I like to think of scripture or I think it's helpful to look at scripture as sort of a five-act play. Uh, creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, and then the church. Um, that's not unique to me. Other people have thought of scripture in that same way, but I think it's a helpful way for us to frame scripture. And where we find ourselves in Zechariah is part of the story of Israel. But where you and I find ourselves today as people alive today is in the ongoing story of the church. The entity through which Jesus is continuing to see his kingdom come to fruition, to, to, to be from sea to sea, right? And, and that's how Jesus' kingdom is coming to fruition now. We know that one day it will ultimately be established um, as the new heaven and the new earth, the new city and the new garden, like we saw in Zechariah chapter 8 last week. But a theme that runs through all of these acts is the idea that God sits enthroned, that God reigns, that Jesus is king, and that God's people in every act of the play are agents of the king as they live as part of God's kingdom. If you think all the way back to the Exodus story, it's literally the story of God rescuing his people from captivity to an earthly ruler and an earthly kingdom and bringing them out of that captivity to be his people who are part of his kingdom. And they are to live in a way that reflects his holiness and how they worship and how they relate to one another and in how they relate to the world around them. And in Exodus 15, there's this famous song that Moses and Miriam sing to celebrate God's triumphant rescuing of his people. And the first part of that song ends with this statement in verse 18, the Lord will reign 
forever and ever. It's a reminder for God's people that God is ultimately enthroned, not Pharaoh, but God. And if you move forward a little bit in Scripture, you come to the book of Psalms, and throughout the book of Psalms, from beginning to end, literally from the second Psalm all the way to the end, there's this constant reiteration of the fact that God is enthroned in heaven. But along the way through the Psalms, you begin to see a pointer a pointer towards a kingly Messiah that will inhabit the throne of David forever. Psalm 72 is an example of that. And let me just read the first eight verses of Psalm 72. They say, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May the... May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Psalm 72 talks about a king that goes out for his people, a king that rules in justice and cares for the poor and oppressed, a king that rules in righteousness, a king that rules over the nations. And like verse 8 says, a king whose kingdom extends from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Which brings us back to Zechariah chapter 9 where part of verse 10 is literally quoting Psalm 72, 8. When verse 10 says, His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, it's a direct reference to this passage in the book of Psalms, which is pointing to a king that will inhabit the throne of David forever. This thread that runs through Scripture from creation to the Exodus to Israel's great kings to Zechariah, this thread ultimately points to and finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And we see that in Matthew 21, which is a direct fulfillment of the promise from Zechariah chapter 9 that we've already read. Matthew 21, 1 through 9 reads this way. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
Part of what I want us to see in Zechariah chapter 9 and specifically in verses 9 and 10 is that these two little verses in Zechariah, they are part of a much bigger story. They are part of a grand narrative. And sometimes, sometimes the way we deal with scripture is to focus so closely on the window that's right in front of us that we fail to, to look through and to look out that window to see the entire grand story. And Zechariah 9, 9 through 10 is a window through which we can look to see how God has been at work all along to bring his kingdom to bear on earth through which we can see that Jesus is ultimately the king of this new kingdom that God is bringing to bear, and through which we can see that God's people are to be agents of that king in the way that we worship God, in the way that we love one another in community, and in the way that we pursue justice in the world around us. We as God's people are part of what God is doing in so much as we are agents of the king in his kingdom. Now, if I shift gears for a moment and come back to Zechariah 9 specifically and the chapters immediately following it, then we can see that Zechariah is both pointing towards a coming king, but also he's providing an immediate hope for God's people. On this side of the cross, we have a luxury that the original hearers of Zechariah's words did not have. We have the New Testament that shows us specifically how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and the rest of the Old Testament. But Zechariah's original hearers found themselves in an entirely different context. They were returning from captivity where they were subjugated by the enemies of God's people. To uh, They're returning to a city that had been ransacked and a temple that needed to be rebuilt. And they've been fasting and praying and waiting for God to do something. And Zechariah shows up in chapter 9 telling these people how God is going to defeat their enemies and how God is going to send a king that will bring peace and reign over the entire world world from sea to sea. It goes on in chapter 10 to talk about how God will restore Judah and Israel through this coming king. And in chapter 11, he speaks of how this coming king will shepherd and care for the people. And so part of what Zechariah is doing here is giving these people a reminder that God is sovereign. It's a reminder that God will ultimately establish his own king. It's not really up to Babylon or Persia or Greece or any other rising power. Even though Israel may be weak now, God is still at work to establish his kingdom for his purposes. Ultimately, a kingdom through Jesus that brings righteousness and salvation and peace. Right? Verse 9 tells us, Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he. And verse 10 tells us, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Right? In the midst of a grim situation, God is promising hope. He's promising hope in a king who is righteous. He's promising hope in a king who brings salvation. He's promising hope in a king who brings peace. Hope in a king whose rule extends over the entire earth. 
When verse 9 talks about righteousness, it is, it's something bigger than just right and wrong. It's about setting things to the right. There's certainly an ethical component to righteousness, but the Old Testament idea of righteousness is so much bigger than that. So much bigger than just right and wrong, I should say. God disciplines his people because he is righteous, but he extends grace and mercy to those same people because he is righteous. God hates injustice because he is righteous, but God loves the poor and oppressed because he is righteous. And the hope in a coming king is the hope in a king who will set things as they should be, as God intended them to be. The hope is in a righteous king who will set things to the right. And when verse 9 talks about this king having salvation, it's talking about a king who is bringing salvation with him to his people. It's not a king who expects his people to save themselves. It's a king who's going to save his people. He's bringing salvation because they can't save themselves. And he is the only one who can. In grace and mercy, he's bringing salvation and going out on behalf of his people. When verse 9 talks about the king riding in on a donkey like Jesus does going into Jerusalem before his death. And when verse 10 talks about this king cutting off the war horse and the chariot and the bow. It's talking about a king that's going to end violence and bring peace. At the time of Jesus, there were probably people who thought that God would bring peace through some type of violent uprising and war or on some or, or maybe bring peace through some stately king. But Jesus shows up on a donkey. That's not the animal a king rides to war. That's the animal a king rides during times of peace. We know that in the person of Jesus, God defeats the violence of this world. God defeats death itself through the resurrection. God brings peace by putting death to death, by laying death in his grave, not by defeating people, but by defeating Satan, sin, and death for all time. And when verse 10 talks about God's rule extending to the ends of the earth, the instinct for us is to think about that time in the future when Jesus returns in the new heaven and the new earth. And the instinct for God's people at, at that time was probably to think about a king that would reestablish the throne of David forever and extend the borders of Israel in a very real way. But the way that God actually does this, the way that God actually extends his kingdom is through his people. And while there is not a one-to-one -one correlation between God's people in the New Testament and the church, there is a sense in which the church has inherited the promises of old. And so God continues to establish his kingdom from sea to sea as his people live in light of what it means to be agents of the king. As we live in the way that Jesus taught us, as we reflect what it means to live justly and walk humbly and sow seeds of peace, as we live in the way that Jesus calls us to, as we love our neighbors and speak the gospel, the kingdom extends from sea to sea. And so as we look at Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10 that we've read, we've got to recognize that there is something really big picture going on here. It's a big picture about God's king and about God's kingdom, but there's also an immediate offer of hope. 
hope founded on the truth that God is sovereign, that God is at work, that God is doing something beyond comprehension. And ultimately, God is a great conquering warrior who will go out for his people, a, a king whose victory ultimately is at one with tanks and weapons, with chariots and war horses. It's one in a way that the people of Zechariah probably wouldn't have believed if you told them. But nonetheless, God is offering hope as a victorious king. And so the question for us becomes this, where is your hope? In the middle of a global pandemic, unlike anything we've seen before, where is your hope? In the middle of the most contentious political season that I've seen in some time, where is your hope? In the middle of our nation coming to grips with systemic injustices that are built into the fabric of our society, where is our hope? I think we know on an intellectual level that any hope placed on any earthly savior is ultimately pointless and worthless. And Zechariah 9, 9 through 10 has reminded us that Jesus is the only person that brings hope and peace and salvation. But the question still remains, when times are dark, in whom or upon what do you place your hope? Where do I place my hope? That's not just some ethereal question out there somewhere. It's real. Who has your heart and who has your hope? Right? And so I would ask you to take some time and to answer that question. Who are you hoping in? And is that something or is that someone else other than Jesus? And if so, why are you placing your hope there? And what needs to change so that Jesus becomes the foundation of your hope? That's the call for us this morning, to hope in Jesus, to do the hard work of figuring out where our hope is currently placed, and instead to place it in Jesus, to not find our hope in anything less than Jesus, our King. Let's pray. God, thank you that Jesus is King God, thank you that you've invited us to place our hope in Jesus the King. God, I pray that you would be at work even now and continually in our hearts and minds to draw us to you, to place our hope in you. God, thank you that you are a King who brings peace and salvation and righteousness. God, may our hope be in you. God, help us to hope in you. And Holy Father, it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that I pray. I would invite you to continue worshiping this morning through our uh, home worship guide. Uh, there are lots of different ways that we can join together and worship um, through those means. Thank you.